0: to a hope 1032 podcast.
1: Welcome to Australia's Invisible History, the podcast where we make the invisible visible. I'm Katrina Rowe, a writer, broadcaster and podcaster based in the Riverina of New South Wales. Dr. Paul Rowe, the Outback historian, is a storyteller from the Back of Burke, and together we are retelling the tales of some of Australia's invisible heroes, pioneers, and visionaries. These are the forgotten folks who made a huge contribution to Australia. Many of them spoke up on behalf of Australia's most marginalised and invisible people. Most were leaders in their field, but all of them were following the invisible footsteps of their own leader the carpenter and teacher from Nazareth. I hope you'll enjoy learning about some of the true characters that have shaped our Australian way of life. Today's story starts in Lancashire, England, where the teenage Mary Riby grew up with her grandmother after being orphaned at a young age. When her grandmother died, she was sent into domestic service, but a rash act of teenage rebellion earned her seven years' transportation to the colony of New South Wales. She was just 15 when she arrived here on the Royal Admiral in 1792. She had no money, no family, no connections. But this convict kid became one of the richest entrepreneurs in the country and one of the most generous philanthropists.
0: I think she certainly faced up to great adversity on her own, like a young kid accused of those crimes and sent 10,000 kilometres away and then rising above that finding a good partner, found somebody that melded her gifts with his and uh, had an enterprising spirit. She saw opportunities and she, she moved forward. But I think she never quite lost a sense of who she was and rose above some pretty tough circumstances to deliver a very important part of our early shaping of modern Australia.
1: You may not have heard of Mary Reby, but you would most likely recognize her face. You know that demure looking granny in her glasses and bonnet on the $20 note? Well, she was anything but demure. Mary Reby was a mum of seven and a widow who built a fortune as a shipowner, trader, and property developer in the early days of the colony of New South Wales. As a convict, and a woman. The odds were stacked against her, but somehow she won over her critics and carved her place in the business community of Sydney. She was also recognised for her contribution to the church, charity and education. Dr Paul Rowe, the Outback Historian, has been having fun looking into this remarkable woman. Hi, Paul.
0: Hi. I think she's like Miss Marple on steroids. (laughs) She's a little granny-looking lady. But when you read a story, you think, wow, that's pretty impressive.
1: She was pretty fearless, yeah. yeah. She actually came to Australia as a teenage convict sentenced to seven years' transportation. What was her crime, Paul?
0: Well, it's a, it's an odd one because she wasn't just a street kid, you know, in trouble in London, but she, she'd had quite a good education. She'd been raised in church but uh, by her grandmother mainly because her parents died. Uh, when she went away to work as a, a sort of a servant in the household, that's when apparently she got tired of it, or for some reason she stole a horse and took off, and tried to sell it. And that in eighteenth century was was a serious crime, and could could have meant she could be hung. But the other odd thing was she was disguised as a boy, and they didn't really discover it until after the uh, after the case had been dealt with.
1: Yeah, she she went by the name of James Burrow, and uh, but either way, as a boy or a girl she was very young you know to be sentenced to hanging or even to transportation she was only 13 or 14 years old
0: well she could have been in those hulks on the on the thames there for a couple of years before she sailed because she was 15 when she got here so it's a pretty horrific start for a 13 year old girl absolutely
1: so when she arrived in sydney you know she was still very young what were her options once she arrived here
0: well, uh, she was probably fairly fortunate because she got a, a job in the household of the, the lieutenant governor, Gross, and uh, so probably she was fairly safe there. But look, for the girls who first came to Australia as convicts, it was sort of a bit of open season, really, and uh, there, were very, there was a shortage of women. So, you know, it wouldn't have been easy. It would have been tough.
1: Now, at the age of 17... 17- in 1794, she gave in to the repeated proposals of her husband, Thomas Reby, and, and got married, yep. which also mm. meant that um, she was pardoned. So how did life change for her now that she was married?
0: Well, he was a 25-year-old officer from uh, the East India Company, which was a huge enterprise, and he himself had sort of had an entrepreneurial edge, and he bought some goods with him intending to go on to India, but he stopped here, And uh, decided to marry this young girl. And I think he must have seen something in her. If he was an entrepreneur, as he proved to be, he must have seen something in this girl. She wasn't just a sort of another servant girl, but she obviously had intelligence and she could write letters. We, We got a letter from her that she wrote to her sister on the boat coming out here. And in that letter, she actually says, well, they told me I was up for seven years, but they, somebody else said I was here for life. She said, well, that's not going to happen. So she, she'd she already made her mind up. She wasn't going to be pushed around.
1: Yeah, she had that fiery independence, didn't she? And very early on in their marriage, she learnt about business she she would fill in for him when he would be away on long trips and she learnt the ropes. But um, when her husband died in 1811, leaving her with seven children, she then took over all his business dealings and she prospered. So what do we know about her as a businesswoman?
0: Well, Katrina, I, I think there's a little tiny clue I found that she had some Quaker Influence in her background, and the Quakers were a very enterprising group. I mean, they were the ones that began the chocolate industry in in, in England, and the Cadburys and the the Macintoshes and so on. And they were noted for their philanthropy, their kindness to uh, people. Uh, In jail, for example, Elizabeth Fry and Fry's Chocolates, she began uh, the the business of trying to release girls from jail. So I think there's a a clue there about the Quaker influence in her life. I think it might have helped her frame her way of thinking about using industry and skill to, to do positive things.
1: And what sort of business activities did she get involved in then?
0: Well, Thomas had already begun international dealings. He, he was travelling to India and he had boats going to the Pacific. So he'd started in the Hawkesbury. Then he had sealing interests in uh, the Bass Strait. Um, they had farms, quite an amazing range of things, liquor licences for hotels, importing goods, exporting goods. So they were very broad and very industrious and I think the two of them made a great team.
1: It's, it's quite striking though that that after her her husband died, that she was able to continue on independently like that, even with seven children and, and a convict background, you know, you'd think the odds would be fairly stacked against her. How did she go with finding acceptance in the business community in Sydney? I, I can't imagine there would have been any other women quite like her at that time.
0: No, not at all. Although, by the same token, there were some very enterprising women like Elizabeth MacArthur, John MacArthur's wife, and Elizabeth Macquarie, uh, the governor's wife, a bit later. Um, They were were women of enterprise in their own way, and I think they probably, I suspect, they might have been befriended her because there was only a small group of people in the colony. So, yeah, you're right. She had to make her way in a fairly dominantly male Kind of context and, and some pretty hard-nosed dealers and you remember the Rum Corps had the early run of Sydney so there was some pretty brutal sort of business going on there and for a convict girl to rise and become their equal and perhaps even more, more equal if you like with her enterprise she, she found I think friends, uh, the Campbells who had uh, a big business enterprise growing in Sydney a Presbyterian family with very strong connections to the church and to the London Missionary Society. They were befriended her, and they joined her in starting the uh, Bank of New South Wales. It was begun in her home, actually, and that grew, of course, into Westpac. But <laughs> they had their finger in a lot of pies, but she certainly didn't back off, and there, there are existing records in the archives of her putting uh, submissions to the government for land, for businesses, for going to court for debts and all that sort of thing. So she was right in there. She was right up front and there's one recorded case where somebody wouldn't pay a debt, she she punched them and she had to go to court on that one. But uh, she certainly didn't take a backward step even in a very aggressively male society and who weren't all that friendly, a wing of them, weren't all that friendly to the emancipated convicts in business.
1: Mm, Yeah, so she definitely would have had to be tough. I can sort of understand a single woman with seven children punching out someone who owed her money <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> you know, I mean I'm not I'm not condoning it but you know you yeah. can sort of understand it that she could have got walked on by some of these yeah, men exactly. if she didn't Stand up herself.
0: Well, I think she'd probably had a pretty tough path up to then through the courts in England and somebody ripping her off. And I, I think she she'd had to stand up for herself. I would imagine as a convict girl on the ship coming out here too, there would have been lots of sexual pressure on her and all that sort of thing. So mm. you you just had to stand up for yourself. There wasn't any anywhere to appeal to really. Mm. Yep.
1: Yeah, and and what do we know about her faith? I mean, we do know that she was active in a church. What else do we know?
0: Well, as I said, she had a, a, a religious upbringing, and it's notable. I mean, she was married, she and her husband were married by the Reverend Richard Johnson, the, the evangelical Anglican pastor of Sydney at St Philip's. And then all her children were baptized there in St Philip's Church. So they weren't taking religion lightly. Um, she was obviously very committed to that and to their education. And then she began to be involved in philanthropic efforts particularly in the area of education she ended up being on the board of the grammar school and that meant she was sort of rubbing shoulders with the the most powerful people in in the society the governor and his wife really favored her because they saw her enterprise and her I think her Christian value system very very important to the moving sydney away from its convict beginnings and the the rum core thing they wanted to build something really permanent and good and wholesome. Whatever she did, she did vigorously. And I think the same, I think she saw her vigorous efforts in business and entrepreneurial efforts as an expression of her faith. And she put that to work, that money to work. I mean, she had £20,000 in 1816, which comes down to about $3.5 million. So she was a multi-millionaire, uh, but she was putting it to, 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 Practical ends: building beautiful buildings and along Macquarie's lines, uh, schools, education, and philanthropy, helping the poor. So, I think while she there's no record of her sort of you know strong sort of evangelical statement about her faith, there's a lot of evidence that says here's a Christian woman, a man of a woman of enterprise and courage and conviction who carried it through right to the finish and it's evident in her children i think one of her sons at least became a a reverend
1: mm. so you know you have to see her really as a pioneer for women in business at a time when it would have been most uncommon what do you think that young women today can learn from her success
0: yeah well that's a, that's a good one isn't it i think she certainly faced up to great adversity on her own like a young kid accused of those crimes and sent to 10,000 kilometres away, and then rising above that, finding a good partner, found somebody that melded her gifts with his, the opportunities, she saw the opportunities, and she must have been very observant, very teachable, and uh, took on board all that she could and applied it and uh, had an enterprising spirit. She saw opportunities and she she moved forward. Mm. But I think she never quite lost a sense of who she was And the opportunity she'd been given and when she went back to England she met her family and there was a warmth in their family so obviously there was a good family structure there but um, I I don't know I think it it shows out in her children uh, that she gave them character and gave them values and rose above some pretty tough circumstances to deliver a very important part of our early shaping of modern Australia. Mm,
1: I think it's interesting that, um, you know, she had a very rough start, obviously, being sent out here as a teenager alone, you know, being sentenced to transportation and everything that happened. But even when she died at at a fairly ripe old age, she had outlived all but two of her children. So she certainly knew suffering even though she was successful so you know, it Absolutely, wasn't like she yeah. was protected from all the difficulties of living in Australia at that at that time. Do you think she deserves her spot on the twenty dollar note with John Flynn?
0: <laughs> well, looking at the the picture, I thought to myself, well, you know, it's a it, it's a beguiling because she's got that little doily thing on top of her head, and she looks like a little old granny looking over her glasses. But behind that those glasses, like I said, Miss Marple has a very sharp mind and a very determined lady who made a very, very deep impact on our, our early colonies.
1: I actually love too, Paul, that there's a convict on our money, because it just says to me, you know, that you can turn your life around, that there are second chances. And for many, many migrants that what Australia has represented, it's been a second chance and a chance at a better life. So in that way, I think she's a good symbol for us.
0: Exactly. And I think we've got to outgrow labels. I think In our society right now, we're busy slapping labels on one another. You know, you're woke or you're fundamentalist or you're whatever. And that's not really helpful. You need to get to know the individual and get in behind their story and find out what it is that made them and why they do what they do. Really listen to their story and understand it.
1: Mm, and she certainly outgrew her convict label, that's for sure. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. That's the Outback Historian, Dr. Paul Rowe. We've been talking about the businesswoman, Mary Reeby. Paul's new book is called Tell Me Another, a storyteller's search for Australia's lost faith. You can find Paul Rowe online at theoutbackhistorian.com.au and you can find me at KatrinaRowe.com. Thanks for listening to episode 24 of Australia's Invisible History, the podcast where we make the invisible visible. I hope you've enjoyed learning about the demure-looking granny on our $20 note. What a formidable woman. You can find more links and info in our notes section. In our next episode, we'll meet a determined philanthropist known as the emigrant's friend, Caroline Chisholm. She helped 11,000 homeless and unemployed women find work and new homes in Australia and even influence Britain's emigration policy.
0: I would imagine there's thousands and thousands of families even presently in Australia who could probably trace the success of their family and their stability back to that woman's love and, and kindness you know, way back in their family tree.
1: That's Dr. Paul Rowe speaking about Carolyn Chisholm. You'll hear her story in episode 26 of Australia's Invisible History. If you've enjoyed our yarns, please do let your friends know about us or if you're a teacher, share them with your students and colleagues. You can sign up for the latest news at hope1032.com.au or follow Dr. Paul Rowe at the thealpachistorian.com.au. I'm Katrina Rowe and thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Australia's Invisible History, please subscribe and give us a review. That way, other people can find us and we can keep telling more stories.
0: Hope 1032. Thanks for listening.